Good evening, everyone. Can you all hear me fine? Great, excellent. That's fantastic. Always a good start. So, um, thank you, all of you, for coming and listening this evening. Um, as Nina said, my research uh, started with the papers of Lord Brabazon and, uh, that are held at the RF Museum. As some of you will know, he was a former president here at the Royal Aeronautical Society in the 1930s. Uh, and I have seen quite a lot of his records about the Society's activities. He gave the Society's 30th Wilbur Wright Lecture uh, here in 1942. He wanted to call his lecture on aviation a blessing or a curse. Uh, but the Society decided that the title was too provocative. <laughs> I'm pleased to say I've suffered no such interference. So thank you, um, first to the Royal Aeronautical Society for hosting this event, and to the museum and the University of Exeter who support me uh, as I'm researching and studying for my PhD. We're here today to discuss the earliest years of the RAF from its establishment around 100 years ago. Now, being a historical pedant, I've already had a mini-celebration on January the 17th last, last month. That's the date that King George V's private secretary wrote from Sandringham to confirm that the King quite approves of the proposal to call the Air Force the Royal Air Force. I also had a peek at King George V's um, diary while I was researching at the Royal Archives, and I did have a look at this day 100 years ago, in which he records the weather, which he usually did every day, fine, rather cold, a bit like now, and also that Bertie arrived from Cranwell on a short leave. I took it as a good sign that the RAF got an oblique reference on the 15th of February, 1918. So my intention this, this evening, as the lecture title suggests, is to discuss history and what having, or more importantly, not having history, meant to the Royal Air Force. As I'll come on to discuss in more detail, the Britain that emerged from the First World War in 1918 had to face profound change and turmoil. The RAF was viewed by its foes um, and by others as uniquely vulnerable to attack on its permanence. Due to the demands of war, the RAF had postponed decisions on issues central to military identity, such as rank, uniform and structure. And this immaturity weakened its position further. However, I'm going to argue this is not the whole story. Although the post-war environment was difficult for all three services, the challenges of the era played out very differently for the most junior of the three. The legacies of the, of the First World War presented opportunities for the RAF, particularly one contrasted with the Navy and the Army. Not all of these opportunities were obvious, and some looked to all intents and purposes as counterproductive to the RAF's prospects for survival, not least, for example, the situation of the economy. But I want to show that the RAF's lack of history, of legacy, allowed the RAF's leadership, its senior leadership, significant freedom in framing its future. This was a unique opportunity at a very important time of history. And why is this relevant? Uh, and I believe this is the experience of the RAF's then tells us something important for the Royal Air Force today in this, its centenary year. Let me go. Oh, how have I done that? Wonderful. Right, here we go. Um, why is this? I'll put that down and then I'll stop playing with it. <laughs> this may sound like a turkey voting for Christmas. I'm a historian and I want to discuss the value of no history. As a historian, I'm going to argue that the RAF's lack of history in 1918 was its greatest asset, and why that sounds a cautionary note for the modern RAF. But that's not, of course, the same as the importance of educating ourselves about history, which is part of the point of us all being here today. So, I'm going to have fun here. I plan to cover the following. The context of the time, the period from 1918 to around 1923, although I might divert from that slightly, looking at the challenges and issues that faced the government, the public, and the armed forces, and how the nascent RAF dealt with that. My next theme will be the parallel experiences of the Army and the Royal Navy, 
and how their established histories affected their responses to the challenges of the day. I'll then go on to discuss two case studies which illustrate how the RAF cherry-picked from the traditional and the modern to best consolidate its position, looking at memorials and memorialisation, and then at empire and public relations. And finally, I'll outline why I think my argument and these case studies can help us understand and embrace some contemporary challenges that face the Royal Air Force today. So, the context, 100 years ago. The particular period from the Armistice Day to the early 1920s was one of significant readjustment for Britain. Indeed, I tend to agree with historians who talk about the long First World War, which lasted into, sort of well into the 1920s. The challenges of the age included, of course, reconciliation with the death and the scale of death inflicted by war, dealing with demobilisation, difficult economic circumstances, unrest at home and in the empire, and social and political change, much of it accelerated by wartime. The RAF, like other organisations, was affected by all these developments, but it found opportunity amid the turmoil. The first of these challenges is self-evident. The nation was coming to terms with the aftermath of four years of bloody conflict. The British population had been touched by war on a scale never seen before. The loss of life, of course, we know, had been greatest in the army by some order of magnitude. I'm really going to enjoy this. Right, there we go. Okay. The historian Jay Winter, who's referenced here, um, has calculated that the death rates, i.e. the chances of being killed in service during the First World War, were about one in eight. For the army. They were 1 in 16 for the Navy and 1 in 50 for the flying services. Understandably, then, the narrative around war casualties and memorialisation of loss in the war centred on the soldiers' experiences in the trenches as that iconic experience of the Great War. For the RAF, this took the focus away from their losses, allowing the service to calibrate carefully its involvement in memorialisation. And I'll come back to this in my first case study. Secondly, demobilisation was a major issue for the armed forces. Winston Churchill was made Joint Secretary of State for War and Air for the Army and the Air Force in January 1919, partly because the challenge of demobilisation was seen as similar for the Army and the RAF. Though the numbers to be demobilised from the army were, of course, much larger, both services faced significant contractions in their manpower and, indeed, woman power, since the Women's Royal Air Force was disbanded in April 1920, two years after um, it was formed. 32,000 women served. Hugh Trenchard became Chief of the Air, Air, of the Air Staff for the second time um, at the behest of Churchill in early 1919. And though demobilisation stripped out expertise in the RAF, it carried with it the unspoken advantage of allowing Trenchard and his senior team to restructure and refocus the Royal Air Force. It was a force which was still essentially an amalgamation of the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps. The building of the RAF from the foundations up was then outlined in Trenchard's famous memorandum, or at least famous for those of us who studied this period, uh, called the Permanent Organisation of the Royal Air Force. This memorandum, uh, which was presented by Churchill to Parliament in 1919, talked about conceptual foundations such as Air Force Spirit, but it also contained a section on physical foundations, which was catchily entitled Necessity for large capital outlay on accommodation. Um, Air Marshal Sir Philip um, Joubert de la Ferte later recounted that the press jokingly called the RAF the Royal Ground Force because of this obsession with building schemes. He went on, interestingly, Trenchard and his advisers had learned one supreme lesson during the war. It takes a long time to design new aircraft, and while waiting for the post-war novelties to show their utility and become worth the money to buy them, there was the task 
of laying down what is now known as the infrastructure of the RAF. As well as laying out foundations for the RAF at home, Trenchard's memorandum also included explicit discussion of the advantages of using air power for air policing in the British Empire and the potential for substituting RAF squadrons for land garrisons, a convenient use of aircraft that the RAF already had as opposed to those post-war novelties that we've just seen referred to. Here, even counterproductive challenges, like a very difficult economic climate, allowed the RAF the chance to develop the concept of substitution as one that would offer highly economical colonial rule. However, um, to put this in some context, the Air Ministry was wisely much more cautious in operational activities closer to the mainland. Trenchard recognised somewhat instinctively, given that there wasn't much scholarship on civil-military boundaries at the time, that there should be lines drawn around military action at home. He said, regarding the use of aircraft for industrial disturbances on the mainland or for policing in Ireland, a military machine was the worst possible weapon for such a purpose and should never be used except for reconnaissance. Trenchard remained consistent in this argument, despite pressure from Churchill, while also recognising that there were other arenas in which he and Churchill might test the coercive nature of air power. On operations in Iraq and Somaliland, for example, the Air Ministry would have significantly more control over the narrative that was delivered to the British population than they would have done using similar act, um, operations just across the Irish Sea. So this confluence of apparently negative factors, economic retrenchment, unrest and empire, a bullish Secretary of State pushing the boundaries, came together to provide an opening for the RAF. And I'll talk, talk more about empire and public relations in my second case study. Finally, the RAF's creation coincided with the establishment of genuine parliamentary democracy, as recent celebrations have reminded us, and broader social change, as well as an appetite for the modern and futuristic. This is during an era, an era of substantial growth for mass circulation newspapers, serving a chief of the air staff with an eye for publicity, and of Churchill's understanding of self-promotion, there's little doubt. The chance to craft a more positive message promoting the glamour and modernity of flying to the public also afforded the RAF a route out of the cycle of memorialisation and recriminations and past reflection, allowing the third service to ride a wave of opportunities that proved less accessible or even invisible, frankly, to the other services. The sense in which the RAF managed to ride this wave describes an organisation which embodied the agility that its pilots and aircraft displayed in the air. The Army and Navy were carrying too much baggage to match the younger services' agility, and much of that baggage was dominated by the legacy of war. The immediate post-war period found the Army and the Navy in a very different place, as I've alluded to. Before the First World War, the senior service had proven adept at mobilising public opinion around its mast. Naval celebrations of the fleet had become increasingly elaborate, embracing notions of nation, empire and monarchy. The public attention that Dreadnought had attracted reflected the focus in defence terms pre-war on the battle for naval supremacy with Germany. In 1914, the Navy approached the war with confidence anticipating decisive action. However, by 1918, the combination of a mixed war without decisive action, the end of the German challenge to British naval supremacy, and the straightened economic circumstances of the time posed serious problems for the senior service. And history records that in the early post-war years, much energy was expended by the Navy and David Beattie as First Sea Lord in particular in shaping the legacy of the Battle of Jutland. The very public dispute between Beattie and his predecessor, John Jellicoe, entailed attempts to apportion blame for the failure to turn Jutland into a decisive action. In terms of memorialisation, this lack of a decisive victory failed to provide the Navy with a hook on which to hang its commemoration, the commemoration of the sailors who died during the First World War. 
Combined with the public's distance from the maritime war effort, this made a coordinated communication of the Navy's contribution to the First World War and of its post-war relevance significantly more difficult. For the Army, the post-war years were arguably even more challenging given the enormous loss of life suffered during the war, the demands of demobilisation and the difficulty of articulating a clear post-war land role. Thousands of men returned to their communities, bringing home with them visible and verbal evidence of the realities of modern war. Like the Navy, for the Army, a long and drawn-out war had actually also seemed unlikely, if not practically impossible. Having started the war with a strength of less than 250,000, it expanded during its duration to 5.5 million. The Army had been stretched and distorted in a way that made their old Edwardian model seem a distant memory. However, the army did not take the opportunity at the end of the war as a signal to revolutionise training or doctrine, preferring to return to their pre-war peacetime training routine. The army also faced the prospect of participating centrally in the public debate about commemorating the lives of those who died. Though the burden of the war had fallen on all three services, as earlier, as earlier mentioned, the sheer size of the army's contribution and sacrifice, combined with the portrayal of trench warfare as emblematic of the Great War, meant the army continued to be the key focus of memorialisation. As, as a sort of brief aside, the Royal Flying, Flying Corps also felt that the war was going to be a short activity. Trenchard later recalled in interviews that officers um, leaving Netheraven left notes on their bedroom's doors saying not to be opened until I return, not predicting the length of the war. The difference, though, is that expectations of air power at the beginning of the war um, were limited, and that lack of expectation excused the RAF from the recriminations that dogged the other two services. So, my first case study. Talking about memorials the physical structures, and memorialisation, that act of commemoration. There's a rapidly growing field um, looking at memory and mourning, which has been particularly encouraged by the centenary of the Great War. But few of the academic works offer a com comparative analysis of the different services, arguably because much of the memorialisation that followed the First World War focused on the army and the soldier. So here I'm going to look at the difference in approaches between the Navy and the Air Force um, and how they looked specifically at plans for a memorial in London to their fallen. I'll start with the story of the Navy and a London memorial. It might surprise you to know that there is no single memorial in London to the First World War and this is the story behind that fact. The National Battlefields Memorial Committee in 1921 allocated the Navy £40,000. That was over and above plans for naval memorials in the home ports. As a result, the Admiralty convened a Naval War Memorial Committee, which was asked to look at the form and location that the memorial might take. In form terms, they looked at pylons, arches, columns, and in location terms, they looked at Dover, Van Scholl and London. They chose London due to it being central and accessible to members of the public, many of whom they thoughtfully noted did not regularly travel by sea. Let's get on. The minutes of early meetings of the committee expose a growing level of incompatibility between the Admiralty's view of the memorial it deserved and the practicalities of what they could achieve. It was the choice of a particular location in London that proved the main drag on progress. An early meeting in 1921 was conducted on foot scouting for potential sites, which makes for interesting minutes. They recorded, the committee then proceeded down the embankment, noting the various unfinished pedestals for statues, which are a feature of the embankment design. They first chose a site on the embankment opposite um, Temple Gardens and developed a rough design seen here. However, while their meetings and decision-making took a fairly leisurely place, unbeknownst to them, other committees, representative of sub-branches in the Navy, were already making their own plans and had been for some time. Records show that the Submarine Memorial Committee had chosen or been allocated this pylon here. 
Um, so uh, this, this one actually had uh, somebody else's plaque on it, W. Stead, who's still there, but they thought they would move that. <laughs> Once the Naval Memorial Committee was alerted to the plans in June 1922, there was a flurry of communication with the Office of Works mediating between the Naval Committee and the Submariners Committee. <laughs> it's quite an interesting reading. But due to the advanced nature of the Submarine Memorial Committee, the Admiralty really had no choice but to approve this, and it was dedicated and unveiled on embankment in 15th Dece- on the 15th of December 1922, and is still there. At the same time, Brigadier General Asquith, son of the former Prime Minister, had set up the Royal Naval Division Memorial Committee to commemorate the First World War's naval infantry arm. Like the submariners, they'd raised their own funds without any help from government. Brigadier Asquith eventually agreed, after negotiations with the Naval Memorial Committee, when they found out about this project, um, that they should combine uh, their projects. He later regretted this, as evidenced, hi, go on, as evidenced by Asquith's rather impatient tone. This is Asquith in a letter the following year in 1923. Our position is that our committee have had money um, subscribed for the division memorial in hand for something like three years, and owing to choppings and changes about the site, we have not yet been able to produce any dividend in the form of a memorial. Because the Naval Memorial Committee now decided they wouldn't like the embankment scheme, probably because of the, sub, because of the Submariners Memorial debacle. There's a lot of memorials in this. Um, and so they looked around elsewhere. There's a snippet in the Admiralty Archives, uh, which tells us that the first Sea Lord reported to the Admiralty Board in November 1922 that he'd approached the King as to the Duke of York's column, but that His Majesty was not prepared to agree to the removal of the statue of the Duke of York. (laughs) I would love to know what they were going to put in its place. The archives don't show that. So by early 1923, they set their sights firmly on Trafalgar Square, (laughs) a location redolent with centuries of naval heritage. But this decision delayed things further, not least because they had an ambitious plan. This is how it looked at the time, not quite the same as now, but this is the north wall, these are the side walls. And they wanted a memorial that covered all the north walls and the side walls. So quite large. Here, they attempted once again to depose a member of the royal family. The first, the first Lord, it's true, the First Lord wrote to the Office of Works this time, asking for the statue of George IV uh, to be moved to an alternate site which would enable not only the pedestals at both ends, but even the side walls of the square being embodied by the memorial. The reply, unsurprisingly, rejects this request uh, and, and said, inasmuch as the statue was designed by Chantry for the particular place in Plinth, it was an outrage to attempt to remove it and an insult to the artist who was no more. Anyway, um, skipping ahead. Sorry about that. Um, the, the Trafalgar Square project was approved in a slightly um, diminished form with a sort of commemorative frieze, a central monument and staircase either side on the north wall. But it was at this time that the Admiralty discovered that in 1921, the Treasury had decided to curtail expenditure on memorials for financial reasons and had given responsibility, all responsibility to the Imperial War Graves Commission. And basically there was no money left. So, and the arguments over who in the Admiralty knew what in 1921 go on rumbling through the archives until the mid-1940s. <laughs> Truly. They were arguing about it during World War II. But suffice to say, the responsibility stretches beyond the first, sea lord, uh, the first lord sorry, in 1921, Lord Lee, who actually was given all the blame at the time. So the plans came to nothing. There's no evidence of any appetite within the Admiralty to fundraise themselves when this government money was no longer available perhaps partly because of the enormous sum of money they would have needed to complete this, Um, and also the fact that the monuments at Chatham, Portsmouth and Plymouth were nearing completion. So having prevaricated for years, eschewing other sites and more modest concepts, as well as proposing to move at least two members of the Royal Family, the Admiralty withdrew and no London memorial to the Royal Navy's fallen was ever built. The postscript, which you might have seen when I moved the slide forward, there we go. is that Brigadier General Asquith and the Royal Naval Division Memorial Committee, having waited patiently all these years, they still had their own funds and they went ahead anyway. They were given permission in 1924 to build a memorial in the form of a fountain designed by Edwin Lutyens, 
and located, ironically, some might say, outside the Naval Secretary's window. <laughs> this was duly unveiled on, in April 1925 by Churchill, and with the Submariner's Memorial and the Merchant Navy Memorial at Tower Hill, they remain the only major London memorials built during this period to naval sacrifice in World War I. In contrast to the machinations, you'll be pleased to know, of the Admiralty, the air ministry moved at considerable pace, a pace in planning a metropolitan memorial. There were monthly meetings of the RAF Memorial Committee from its inception in 1919 to the delivery of that memorial in 1923 on Whitehall Stairs Embankment. This memorial, which I'm sure some of you will be familiar with, is um, just near Westminster Bridge outside the modern Ministry of Defence. The committee first met on the 1st of February 1919. It doesn't look like the RAF was awarded any public money. Um, the Navy and the Army both were initially. So they decided to pursue endowing an existing church. The fund proposed subsidising Grosvenor Chapel in South Audley Street, just up the road from here actually, in return for having the right to erect Air Force memorials in the building and hold services. And they wrote out to officers for consultation, RAF officers for consultation on what they thought about that. At the following meeting, it was reported that feedback from the consultation did not support this plan. And the committee raised for the first time the prospect of erecting a monument. I'll put a bit of a timeline on the top of what was happening when to help um, with all of this. So by December 1919, the committee settled on the four priorities um, as listed on the left, provision for children, assistance to the sick and the disabled, and a monument. They, um, the, and they, they said that it should have a cost not exceeding £10,000, preferably in connection with St Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey. Now, demonstrating a considerable sense of momentum, they had three committee meetings in the month of December 1919, and the final one was held on the 30th of December 1919. And they agreed in that one that the RAF Memorial would take top priority um, as, their, as, as their objectives. They inquired about using Westminster Abbey and were told no. The subsequent minutes for 1920 then show that they wrote to the Office of Works and asked the Office of Works to suggest where they should build their memorial. In 1921, the Office of Works suggested Whitehall Stairs, the location, and within a month, they'd approved that. Subsequent meetings show that they're looking at design plans. They chose Sir Reginald Blomfield as the um, architect, and he furnished a draft design. Given the limitations of the project... Um, I'll leave this for a sec... Given the limitations of the size of the area, and you know, those of you who know it will know it's on, on, on the pavement with lots of trees around it, uh, there wasn't much of a ground footprint available. So he suggested an eagle and globe atop a pylon to achieve the requisite height. The memorial was constructed 1922-23 at a cost of approximately £6,000 and eventually unveiled by the Prince of Wales, shown here, on the 16th of July, 1923. The Times report of the unveiling described the memorial and the atmosphere of the event. Of Lord Cecil's speech, the piece reported officers and airmen would be moved at the sight of it to thoughts of pride and sorrow when they recalled the brave men it commemorated. It would bring to mind many pleasant reminiscences as well as heroic memories. And the Times article also reported that after the prince had inspected the memorial, he's inspecting it on the right there, um, he left amid cordial cheers from the crowd. And the legacies of the RAF's approach to memorialisation go beyond this mo monument. Significantly, the RAF Memorial Fund became the RAF Benevolent Fund. And the first fundraising flying display at Hendon for the memorial became a much larger and enormously popular annual pageant for, um, that grew during the following decade. The concept of a flying display had first been mentioned in the context of fundraising, in the Memorial Fund Minutes in early 1920, it's so typical of minutes, isn't it? Former committee to arrange a flying display at Hendon and report at the next meeting. A later meeting um, in 1920, following the first successful pageant, records Sir J. Salmond reported that the sum of about 6,800 would be handed over to the fund. So they raised in that more than they needed. The RAF had barely looked back sidestepped the memorialisation of death in the design of its pylon and golden eagle 
And in the process, brought about the Hendon Air pageant and the RAF Benevolent Fund. I believe that the Air Ministry's approach was significantly different in tone and attitude to the Admiralty. The Admiralty retained close control over their plans, whereas the Air Ministry devolved things to the Memorial Fund, which sat um, and met at a separate location. The RAF cut, cut its cloth according to its means and in line with Trenchard's mantra of efficiency. The Air Force asked for advice, advice from its officers and then acted on it, and having no centuries-long heritage to conflate its war record, settled for a modest solution with a national memorial costing one-sixth of the Navy's allocation, which, as we know, they didn't spend. With no need to invoke past battles, the simplicity of the eagle and the globe avoided visual and symbolic association with death and instead presented an attractive memorial. And the ceremony, as I've said, referred to pleasant reminiscences and cheers from the crowd. The contrast with the Navy is stark. The Admiralty seemed to be working at odds with naval sub-branches, insisted on pursuing an elaborate memorial plan which did not match economic or practical realities. The Admiralty could not resist the pull of Nelson and Trafalgar Square, resonant of the heroic past, and their protracted campaign came to nothing. My second case study is public relations and empire. In setting the context of the early post-war years, I talked about the RAF's enthusiasm for air policing in empire, substituting air power for land power. And as I said, the distance um, of these operations away from Britain allowed the RAF to exercise some control over what information was getting back to the British public. And as we've just learned, the RAF Memorial Fund was instrumental in organising the first air pageant at Hendon. So in this case study, I want to look at the related activities of early public relations and the presentation of empire air policing activities to the British public. The RAF and Air Ministry were quick to realise the value of displaying their machines and prowess to the public following the first successful pageant. In 1921, the draft programme produced by the Air Ministry included a flying demonstration comparing aircraft used at the beginning and end of the war to demonstrate the improvements that had been made in speed, climbing and agility. The spectacle was literally and figuratively about moving forward. The pageant served to exhibit also the military purpose of the RAF and, as the historian David Amici has argued, to act as a vehicle to propagandise about the activities overseas. Hendon was an obvious choice of location, being accessible by motor vehicle and public transport and preferable to RAF airfields further afield. It had been the site of early pre-war um, races and had attracted a smart gay crowd before the war. The first display... Um, in 1920 attracted about 40,000 spectators and by 1932 it was attracting 170,000 spectators who actually came in to view from inside the enclosures. No, there were many, many thousands outside as well. No doubt the presence of the royal family and specifically George V from 1923 also improved the popularity of the event. The use of the event to showcase RAF operations overseas was a key aspect of the display, as I've said. The air displays offered the chance to inform the public of its contribution and to curate the content to present a sanitised version of actual operations. There were unpleasant racial overtones in the content. With the Hendon displays, the RAF promoted a particular narrative about native characteristics of tribespeople and their susceptibility to the power of the aeroplane. The 1922 attack on a desert stronghold display involved the recreation at Hendon of a mock tribal fort where a Bristol fighter had been forced to land. The stranded machine was at once heavily attacked by the locals. The British airmen, disguised as gaily coloured whatnots, British bombers then attacked the fort, an impressive structure with minarets and loophole towers 100 foot high, and sent it up in flames. So here they were, presenting in a controlled but public environment the deadly efficacy of colonial air power and reinforcing the image of Arabia as the land of the RAF. Programme descriptions and posters such as this, or this is actually the programme, um, glorified the RAF's role in the Middle East and publicly promoted one of the main fascinations, or main justifications for its continued existence. 
I just wanted to also talk a little bit about the pageant allowing the RAF to make some less than subtle and misleading claims for its capabilities against sea power. In 1922, the aeroplane magazine described a decision to withdraw um, doing a demonstration where bombers attacked a, a ship um, during the demonstration and destroying it. They ruled it out for fear of offending the Admiralty and making the political situation worse than it already was. It appears, though, that this tactful decision in 1922 did not survive the turbulence with the Navy over the next couple of years. And the papers of J.C.C. Davidson in the, Royal, in the Parliamentary Archives show a series of letters between Commander Belez, an MP and Navy, and the then Secretary of State um, for Air, Sir Samuel Hall. He accuses the Air Ministry of being engaged in propaganda against the Navy. And here's your evidence. He writes, it's the habit of the Air Ministry to arrange an exhi at exhibitions and at Hendon, a display in which a warship model is blown up from the shore while an airplane comes over. The propaganda motion is to send every spectator home with the idea that a battleship costing millions is at the mercy of a single bomber costing £20,000. Nothing could be more remote from the truth. The effect is to undermine public confidence in the Navy, and not even the Bolsheviks could render the country a worse disservice. <laughs> we really annoyed them. <laughs> uh, the Navy, despite, despite its pre-war, pre-First World War appetite for elaborate naval celebrations, had shied away from doing um, similar displays or pageants in the early post-war years. It wasn't until 1926 that they formed a committee to look at organising a naval pageant at Portsmouth amid press speculation about their lack of public presence. This is where I sort of allude to PR. Lord Burnham, oh, where are we? Lord Burnham, the proprietor of the Daily Telegraph, wrote in 1926, the Navy's policy of silence has been carried too far. It is obvious, if you shut down discussion of naval problems and the recital of naval achievements, you must damp down the ardour and appreciation of the nation. So from 1927 onwards, Navy Weeks became a popular feature. Although they're outside of the time frame of what I'm talking about, I wanted to share it with you because of Commander Belair's early, early objections. Because naval historian Christopher Bell reported the later participation of aircraft. Notably, it was only after the Navy regained control of the fleet air arm that aircraft began to play a prominent part in Navy Weeks' phase. These usually took the form of mock air attacks on British ships and always ended with the ship still afloat and several of the attacking aircraft destroyed. <laughs> they got their own back, which I do quite like. So, the, the, the RAF proved adept, I would argue, at early public relations, and the Hendon air displays are a good example of these efforts. In displaying its modern aircraft, exciting crowds with the novelty and glamour of aviation, while feeding the public orchestrated dem demonstrations of the RAF's role in policing empire, they demonstrated the RAF the way that they could meld the popular, the traditional, and the modern. They harnessed media and mass public interest in aviation, and they placed the RAF firmly at the heart of the notion of country and empire post-World War I. In approaching a relationship with the public, and free from the expectations of war or the recriminations of post-war, the RAF confidently displayed its stage-managed presentation of imperial policing, and used pageants from the very, very first year of the decade, from 1920, to celebrate its uniqueness, again contrasting with the other two services. <laughs> now, I'd like to turn to the implications of this for today's RAF. The modern RAF's cultural underpinnings can be traced back to its earlier days and the manner of its infancy. I've highlighted that a century ago, the RAF was balancing elements of the traditional empire memorials, with the modern air pageants, technology, public relations. My view is that now the RAF is balancing again between its past and the future, between legacy and change. Tim Robinson of this parish, writing for the Society last year, alluded to something similar in an article, Time for a Third Offset, reporting on last July's Air Power Conference. He wrote about the immense cultural and legacy challenge of large command structures and rigid top-down hierarchies and the deep vested interests of services and squadrons. It was striking for me to read these words when I'm immersed in a historical world 
where the RAF came from a place of little structure, culture, or legacy, and what vested interests they had they'd inherited from other organisations. So I want to talk about time. Um, I'll explain the flamingos. Um, specifically, I want to talk about the past and the future. We generally talk about the future as, as being ahead of us, of facing our future. This is how I see Trenchard, Trenchardian flamingos. Stefan Moore is a renowned Assyriologist, not somebody modern British historians, or probably you, um, have read a lot of. But he's written about the way ancient Mesopotamians viewed the past and future. Looking at their language, he found that terms such as past, earlier, former times are related to terms for front and face. And terms that have a sense of future, later and afterward are related to terms like reverse and behind. So while we make, might conceive of ourselves as advancing along a timeline that has us facing our future, the Mesopotamians advanced along the same timeline with their eyes firmly fixed on their past and their future unseen behind them, which is a quite neat idea. My argument is that advancing along a timeline with your eyes fixed on the past is easier, almost a default setting, for the established armed forces. I've looked, for example, at how the Royal Navy, after the First World War, faltering in memorialisation, its ultimately futile attempts to claim a large part of Trafalgar Square, which was a location emblematic, emblematic of its greatest victory. That, to me, looks like a service that preferred the comfort of the glorious past to the challenge of a difficult future. A century ago, the RAF had no such choice. It faced its future because it had to. This is my cautionary tale for the modern RAF. This year, understandably, the RAF's first centenary will be a year of looking back, of celebrating its contributions to history, the Battle of Britain, Bomber Command, the Berlin Airlift, Gulf War I, the achievements and advances of air power. That is quite as it should be. I'll just put you back to my Trenchardian flamingos. That is quite as it should be, but this should not frame thinking. My argument is the RAF's history is something we should keep in a box, and of course one of those boxes is the RAF Museum, to get it out at times of reflection and celebration to get it out of that box when we want to educate supporters, detractors, or people who know little or nothing about the Air Force. But then we should put it back in, in the box and face the future facing forwards. By the way, when I say we now, I'm really talking about the RAF and supporters, kind of mixing it up. Um, so I'm talking about any of us who, uh, who look forward to a long and illustrious future for the Air Force. So I'm not arguing that we shouldn't look at history but we should do that to educate ourselves on the legacy of that history. It should help us understand inter-service competition and our cultural differences and give us the confidence to fight our corner. But it shouldn't define us. The RAF faces many challenges now, and it's a subject for another lecture on another day. But I wanted to touch on two which are interrelated to illustrate how important I think it is to understand the dangers of fixating too much on the past. At the centre of both of these... Is the icon of all air forces, including our own, the pilot. Unmanned air vehicles are a challenge to the historic perceptions of the pilot. In the past, it was aircrew who jumped into their aircraft, took, into the, took to the skies, putting their lives on the line. Now UAV aircrew take no physical risk when they fly from Lincolnshire or the United States, though they do, of course, take risks with their mental health. That's very different from the past. And even in manned aircraft, the physical dangers and risks to aircrew have been significantly reduced. As many of you will know, the death rates for Bomber Command aircrew were higher than they were for soldiers in the trenches in World War I. When I joined the RAF in the 1990s, accidents happened almost every month. I'm not unique in, use, in losing friends and colleagues at an age when my civilian friends had not even buried their grandparents. My last tour at RAF Valley 15 years later was also my first tour in my whole career where we did not thankfully handle a single aircraft accident. Of course, accidents still happen. Operations are dangerous every time a, a pilot has been shot down in Syria of any nationality. Um, I know I think of them. 
But advances in flight safety and risk management and the increased use of simulation mean that military flying is not, thank goodness, as dangerous physically as once it was. These advances, UAVs and air, safe, air safety, are fantastic advances, but they epitomise the need to keep facing forward to our future. I detected in some senior airmen at the time these changes were first being felt a nostalgia for manned aircraft, for the pilot as the mainstay of the RAF, a desire to continue to lionise that iconic singular figure taking the ultimate risk with his or her life. But at the same time, the language of drones and collateral damage took hold in the public mind. We weren't agile in handling that challenging narrative a decade ago, as I know from personal experience. I'd like to share a quote with you now. Politically underprivileged, misunderstood by the public, incapable of competing equally in the public arena with its more articulate and dramatic rivals, each service's feeling of inadequacy was undoubtedly real, and the ritualistic deploring of its inferiority furnished a perfect rationale for an incentive to political action. This was the political scientist Samuel Huntington writing about the United States Armed Forces in the 1950s. He goes on in a, in a really interesting article to draw a parallel between a sense of inferiority and greater strength. Being the junior service can give the RAF a sense of inferiority, but that's also a source of great strength. If, by reaching a venerable age, the RAF allows its sense of inferiority to diminish, here we are, into our second century. We've arrived. What if that diminishes our strength, too? The condescension of the other two services 100 years ago to their new rival is entirely understandable and was not without basis. The RAF was an amalgamation of two disparate arms, was short of advocates in Parliament and the press, and had been shorn of many experienced personnel by the process of demobilisation. It was an easy target, and although RAF advocates were not numerous, they could be deliberately provocative. Um, Pro-aviation MPs and peers, including Brabazon, were not averse to declaring in Parliament the imminent demise of sea power. Incidentally, I was just looking at this today, Brabazon did also say that the fleet was no more use than seaweed <laughs> in defending Britain from air attack, which was reinterpreted in the press as him saying the Navy is as dead as seaweed, which did not go down well, although seaweed clearly isn't necessarily dead, but there we go. Nevertheless, for all of this, the Army and Navy's future was never in doubt. The RAF was under attack from the beginning. The pro-Navy lobby was equally vociferous and had the ear of the Harmsworth brothers, particularly Rothermere and Northcliffe, who, for example, used their papers, the Times and the Daily Mail, for some choice attacks on the continued existence of the RAF. But the RAF had the advantage of terra incognita, Without a history, the RAF chose a different path to the other services. Here, the advantages of facing forward, rather than dwelling on the past, set it apart from its sister services. Sometimes the RAF combined <coughs> notions of tradition and modernity, as it did with the Hendon Air pageants. Here, a role in empire was packaged and presented, along with classic tropes of pageantry, royalty and high society. But it was mixed with the excitement and modernity of flying and with technological advancement, offering the public something of the age, capturing the zeitgeist. This deafness, this achievement, has often been overlooked in the context of the threats that the RAF faced in the 1920s. But I argue that there is much to learn from these early years about the soft powers of influence and identity, public relations, propaganda and presentation. Of course, the RAF and its supporters are celebrating the centenary year. The RAF Club, just around the corner, has its centenary project. The RAF Museum has its centenary programme. And I'm sure, or at least I hope, I don't have to introduce you to RAF 100. We're surrounded by the word centenary. 
I worry that there's an underlying in, um, inference in reaching triple figures, that we've arrived, that reaching this age, age gives us extra gravity and legitimacy. What the RAF's history of 100 years ago should teach us is that having no, no baggage made us creative, opportunistic and ambitious. If the RAF keeps its history too close, it'll become the baggage that will weigh it down, just as the Army and Navy were saddled with the baggage of their past. The place for our baggage is our museums, in articles, in lectures, in staff colleges. And I would, wouldn't I, of course, argue that in those spaces we need to spend more time thinking about the RAF's cultural, organisational and political history. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm really not going to get into a row about military history. I really don't want one afterwards in question either. But it can have a reputation for fixating on war, strategy, doctrine and hard power. Yet there is, as I hope I've demonstrated, so much to explore of the RAF's cultural and political history. The number of academics working on this area is small but growing, and that research then needs to make its way out to a wider audience. In summary, my cautionary tale is that legacy and history constrain, and I would like to see better awareness of that, particularly viewed through the prism of the RAF's experience in the early post-war years. Having history now is not a bad thing, but looking backwards beyond the particular requirements of this centenary year, is best left to the fantastic RAF Museum and many other sites of heritage, to historians, and to aid the education of the next generation of air women and men. Talking about our history now in order to legitimise our existence is the exact opposite of what the RAF did in the early years. That's at the heart of my argument. History serves to educate and engage but it's dangerous if it's employed to legitimate our future existence. Beyond that, as I hope I've demonstrated by looking at the other two services' experiences, chasing the recre recreation of a glorious past is dangerous. If it takes three centuries to build a tradition, as Admiral Cunningham in 1941 said, so he said it took three years to build a ship, but three centuries... Sorry, I, did I century? It, it takes three centuries to build a tradition. And if the junior Royal Air Force are accused of having habits rather than, than traditions, which the Navy do like to say, I've said, had it said to me many times, then we should be proud of that and embrace our habits and our future facing forward. Thank you. And a big thank you to lots and lots of archives. As, um, I just wanted to list them all. They've done so much, so many of these places. Um, and I just wanted to put that up because that's basically what I want you to do now.